today, our, we're in a series, For or Against, Thinking with Integrity. Today we're going to talk about the Me Too movement. Um, about 26, 27 years ago, Nancy and I were in Germany, and we were sitting at a table. And uh, dining room table, we had... Um, we were working with a lot of U.S. military. We had the wife of a military person who um, the couple had come to us for help, and we were not trained. I hadn't even been to seminary yet, so we had no training. We just had a love for people. That's really all we had going for us, which is worth a, a ton. And so we didn't know what was wrong, but it was really obvious to us that something drastically was wrong with her. So Nancy and I ordered... Um, we ordered books from the U.S. as before the Internet on childhood victims of sexual assault, began reading them. And so we sat down and uh, we made a list of all the indicators. And I said, you know, um, this woman meets all those criteria. Nancy said, you're right. There's someone else in our ministry that meets all that criteria. I said, who? And she said, you. Why don't you tell me what you've always been ashamed of? You see, I too am a victim of childhood sexual assault. I never told a soul, not even my parents. It's hard to describe that feeling of having a blanket just ripped off and all the shame, the filth just come floating to the surface that had been locked away for years. Um, started me on a journey that uh, has culminated with me standing here today, many, many years later, with hope. <clears throat> Today we're going to address some very sensitive topics, so please be patient with me. I'm very grateful for my friend, Dr. Erin Heim. She's a professor at Oxford University in England who's done a whole lot of work in this. We had dinner last fall. I told her what I wanted to do, and she has sent me a lot of her research to help me think through more theologically what's going on. Uh, the Me Too movement... You're fortunate you're in the second service. I did most of my crying in the first service. The, um, the Me Too movement has elicited all kinds of um, publicity, controversy. And so we're in a series where we're talking about real issues. Because if we can't talk about them, who can? Who can? There's a lot of verbiage going all around on the social media about this. The pendulum probably has swung pretty far so that you're guilty until proven innocent. That's the natural assumption. Uh, it is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly men. There are some women who are guilty, but it is overwhelmingly men. We're going to talk about why in just a moment. Uh, but it needs to come out. It needs to be brought out. It needs to be put on the table and discussed because the Bible actually has a lot to say. In fact, next week we're going to talk about the Old Testament 
and uh, sexual assault, the rape culture. Uh, David is guilty of sexual assault, King David. <clears throat> That's why Bathsheba was never held accountable. So we're going to come back next week and have some more conversation about it. Let me tell you the actual history of the Me Too movement. In 2006, the civil rights activist, Tarana Burke, began using the phrase Me Too on social media to raise awareness of the pervasiveness of sexual abuse and sexual assault in society. Some of you I know probably have no idea how pervasive it is. Uh, I do read lots of reports. Many of you know that. I read the uh, Department of Health and Human Services, their reports. And uh, the sexual abuse incident rate in our country is, is uh, breathtakingly high. Um, somewhere between 30, 35% as best we can tell of the women in our um, culture have been sexually abused. And they think that number is dreadfully low because of the shame. I didn't want to tell anybody. I was too embarrassed to tell anybody. And so when you look at the individual state reports, all 50 states report childhood victims of sexual assault. And it ranges from what I can tell year to year around 9% for each state. And those are not static numbers. Those people are reported and they get caught. So it happens over and over and over again. Um, I've seen reports that show the younger the generation, like in our middle school group, it's as high as 50% or more. This is a real problem. This is a real problem. As Christians, we should lead the way in not only hope and healing, but having the discussion. On October 15, uh, 2017, an actress by the name of Melissa Milano started a viral Twitter thread by tweeting, quote, if you've been sexually harassed or assaulted, write hashtag me too as a reply to this tweet. She'd been sexually assaulted at the age of 19. Her reasoning was very simple. If all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote me too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. In the first 24 hours, 55,000 tweets. In the first 12 months, 14 million. Friends, this is a real problem. This lies at the very core of who we are as humans. This is a real problem. If we can't talk about it, who can? What this tells us is that it's a very serious problem, but it's not only in our culture. I travel, as you know, and teach in third world countries. That's a very chronic problem the world over. And we could be the leaders in starting to address it. The use of hashtags has, uh, no matter what you're thinking on the internet and social media, the use of hashtags has provided us the means of creating a community of survivors, if you will, who have experienced these horrific abuses. And it's fairly instantaneous. It tells us pretty quick how big a problem is or how popular a viewpoint is, things of that nature. The follow-on hashtags, hashtag church2 and hashtag silence is not spiritual, those two hashtags have revealed that these same sexual issues are pervasive in the church. What that means is that I'm not alone. <laughs> That's what it means. I'm well aware of that.
That's why we work so hard to create a safe culture where you'll experience no shame here. You'll experience grace and help. You know us well enough to know, those of you that attend regularly, that we're regularly talking about us as a community. We pray for Heather and Dan. They're part of us. They're part of us. They're not some object out there. It doesn't matter what particular sinful blind alley you find yourself in. You belong to something that's healthy here. A people group. And if this is you, my message today is pretty simple. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to feel ashamed. You really don't have to. A brief word for those that may be perpetrators under the current definition of sexual assault. We'll get to that. Is that you'll find grace too. Right now I'm dealing with the survivors and the victims. You don't have to stay there. You don't have to stay there. You see, what this means is that the survivors are hiding right in plain sight. Right here. In our midst. They're also in the grocery stores. And they're in your work environments. They're in your neighborhoods. They're in your schools. They're in your friend groups. They're right here hiding in plain sight. Our goal is to acknowledge the pain, let's be honest about it, and the injustice of sexual and gender-based violence and to provide some measure of hope and healing. We need to quit hiding behind terms such as misconduct, poor behavior, moral failure. All those things just sanitize the truth. Let's call it what it is. It's just called sin. It's evil. It's wicked. (laughs) If you've not been through it, You can tell the pain is just always below the surface. You wouldn't know that. Now you do. It's evil. Let's just call it what it is. Paul called it sin in the body in 1 Corinthians 6. Let's read that. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, he's talking to perpetrators here. When you move to the side of victims and survivors, you could easily say it's a sin inside their own body. Okay? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? That's hard for a victim to understand. Me? Really? Who is in you, the Holy Spirit, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor... God with your bodies. So what is sexual misconduct? Here's a simple definition. Sexual misconduct is a broad term encompassing any unwelcome behavior of a sexual nature that is committed without consent or by force, intimidation, coercion, or manipulation. It is a sin at the very core of a person's body. And what it means is that that person has lost control of their own body, not by their design. Somebody has taken it away. Somebody else has taken it away. So where do we start? With all these concepts, every week after week, we're starting with dignity and human flourishing. Dignity because each person is made in the image of human flourishing because that's what God has made us for, deep joy. 
And so this is a part of human flourishing. We can't flourish very well if we have a segment of our congregation that has, has been sexually abused and they, they have no place to talk about it. Part of flourishing is that we can be honest with about it and talk about it here. I'm not trying to shame anyone. You know me. That's not my approach. When I have coffee with you, those of you that have told me the truth about what's going on, whatever area of sin you struggle with, I've never shamed you, never meant to anyway. I think at this stage of my Christian ministry, there's nothing that can offend me. I'm not offended by your sin. As a pastor, what I want to know is, what was the destruction that was done because of it? Because redemption, I believe in redemption. I believe in a God who heals. And as a pastor, that's what I want for every member of the congregation. Honestly, that's what I want for our county. The people I run into at grocery stores and restaurants and gas stations is to experience that same healing that I've experienced. That's what I want. So I'm not here to shame any, anyone, just the opposite. We need to discuss these issues because the Bible discusses them. And if the Bible discusses them, that means God is giving us insight into a lot of pain, a lot of hurt. So it's important that we create a safe place right here. That's the very essence of a flourishing community, is that we create a safe space right here, a place where all the evils and sins that either we have perpetrated or have been, have been perpetrated against us can be brought to the surface and healing can occur. The church should be the leader in this. Most churches are afraid to talk about it. I'm not. So, where do we start? We're going to start with the crucifixion in Jesus. You see, at the core of the definition of sexual misconduct is sin which is committed against a person's body in which they give up or lose control against their will to someone else. That's what it means. That was taken from me as a young boy. I wish it wasn't true. I'm not ashamed of it. I was for years. Somebody else took it. What if Jesus himself is a victim of sexual violence? And I'm going to argue that he is. If he is a victim of sexual violence, then he can actually truly stand in empathy, as Hebrews talks about, and solidarity with those of us who are survivors. And it doesn't matter what the sin is. Jesus has probably been exposed to it. And this one area is clear to me. Theologians for the West, in the West, where our tradition comes from, have appropriately focused on the physical pain aspects of the, of the crucifixion. We agonize, I mean, we emphasize, for example, physical agony, the pain of being scourged over and over again, the excruciating death by asphyxiation. That's all true. That's all true. But honestly, the truth is so horrendous about crucifixion that we cover Jesus with a loincloth on all of our crucifixes. But that's not the biblical story. Nor is it what we know from church history and her history of the Roman Empire. Here's the truth about crucifixion. The physical pain aspect is very real, so I'm not downplaying that at all. But studies, first century studies in both violence and trauma have revealed that there was a very, very dark side to crucifixion. It was a heinous form of torture that only lasted about 70 years. Even the world could not tolerate it. 
was so heinous. You see, crucifixion was designed to strip to strip the victim of their dignity and humanity. Is there any better way to do that than sexually? They did this by stripping them naked. Trying to control the memories. Subjecting them, stripping them naked, subjecting them to utter shame through sexual vulnerability and loss of bodily control. We now know that many of the victims were tortured way beyond beatings before they put them on the cross. In other words, the crucifixion was a form of uh, ritualized public sexual humiliation. That's called assault. The gospel writers record that Jesus was stripped naked three times. Once when he was being beaten. You have to picture this. He's in front of the court. The Roman soldiers. People that want to stand around and watch. They stripped him naked and they beat him. Then they put a robe on him and mocked him. And then they took the robe off again. He was naked once more. Then they put his clothes on him. They took him out to the hill where they took his clothes off. And he was naked when he was crucified. That's the ultimate degradation. That's sexual assault. You see, Jesus himself, I believe, was a victim of sexual assault. What that means is we have a Savior. That's what it means. He has been where I've gone. And he's been where you've gone. The story doesn't end at the cross. When you turn to the passages on resurrection, I would suggest that the story of resurrection, when properly understood with our new glorified bodies, the emphasis in Scripture is on bodies, which is the very essence of sexual assault. Somebody removes my dignity and my control. It provides a very genuine and real level of hope. You see, at the core of the resurrection is the return of control of your own body. That's really what it is. In other words, the resurrection to which we all look forward to, it's somewhat abstract for us. This is one of those places where it becomes very real. It becomes a true source of hope, of empowerment, because it doesn't silence or minimize the experience of crucifixion. Instead, it offers genuine hope of restoration of control, restoration of dignity, restoration of bodily autonomy for Christian survivors of sexual violence. You all know people who've been sexually assaulted. Every one of you. That's how pervasive it is. The focus on the body in these passages we're going to look at in just a minute is obvious. It's very evident. Um, (coughs) The nature of sexual violence is that victims of sexual violence, they carry the effect of someone else's sin with them everywhere they go. Everywhere they go. 
In my case, it was guests in my home. I don't even know who they are. But the memory's crisp and clear. Victims, myself included, often feel dirty, tainted, shamed. That's what I felt when Nancy very gently, she knew she was moving into an area that was massive. And she very gently pulled the covers off. Why don't you tell me what you've always been ashamed to tell me? My own experience and that of many, many others is to struggle with feelings of being ruined. I don't know how else to say it. Being ruined, dishonored, weak. Victims of sexual assault in marriages struggle with all kinds of other issues. And our marriage is no different. We had to find redemption in lots of places in our marriage in the first 10 years. because it's at the very core of who we are. This is the very same words that Paul uses to describe the natural body in 1 Corinthians 15. I've highlighted these words. Go ahead and put that up there. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead, is what Matt wrote, that the body which is sown imperishable, there's that sense of ruin. My body is ruined. It will be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. I have been dishonored. My honor has been stolen from me. It will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. I feel weak a lot. It is raised in power. You know, it's interesting in 1 Corinthians, that's 1 Corinthians 15. When you go back and look at the other crucifixion passages, by now that he's already gone through what healthy sexual relationships look like in marriage, 1 Corinthians 7. He's talked about the importance of sexuality in 1 Corinthians 6, healthy sexuality in the church. Um, it's at the very core of who we are as Christians, and it's the very core of who we are as churches. That's why I've said over and over again, the greatest gift we can give to the world is to help our marriages right here. Because out of a healthy marriage flows all the giving that the church needs. And all other sins begin to slowly diminish we have healthy marriages. All the way back in 1 Corinthians one twenty three, he says, we preach Christ crucified. That's the language he uses there. At some level, now that you know what crucifixion is really all about, if you had been there in the first century, at some level, this language has to include the stigma of sexual violence that was portrayed on the cross through the process of crucifixion through the process of the trials and the beatings and the mockings and, yeah, the sexual violation. It has to include that. It must include the statement, when we talk about Christ crucified, we have to expand our perspective to include a statement against the power structures that allowed or intended to shame its victims and strip them of dignity. It has to include that. Because I think Paul intended it. The Roman government was responsible. Now we have a government that's trying to, to correct it. I'm thankful for that. Maybe the pendulum swing goes too far. I'm not worried about that. The pendulum swing will adjust itself back. But it needs to be addressed. 
In other words, Paul's declaration of Christ crucified is a pronouncement of judgment against all of the degradation of the crucifixion. All of it. Including sexual assault. It's a statement against all of it. Jesus' body continues to testify that we are not alone and that there is hope. So put up the second version of 1 Corinthians 15. This time I range the underlining just a little bit differently. For those of us that feel that we, we are ruined, perishable, our new body will be, will be pristine. I get a new body. It'll be clean. It'll be pristine. For those that feel dishonored, our new body will be glorious. It is raised in glory. The glory that has been robbed of many of us will be returned. I get to look and say, what a great body God has given me. It'll be returned. For those that feel weak and shamed, weakness, our new body will have power. Power. For what? To reclaim what was rightfully ours through creation and what was, which was robbed from us. That's what. I had no choice, no control. I will one day. Once again, as we experience redemption and healing in our midst, right here, we become, we, we become a picture of the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, they are the new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. We become a picture for all of our friends and relatives and even strangers of what life really looks like. We do. That's why we work so hard as elders and staff to create safety. No shame, no offense, no condemnation, no judgment. Help, yes. Okay, so what does all this mean? Well, I don't pretend for a second to believe that my sermon is going to heal all the pains and horrors that many of you experience. PTSD takes a long time. I know. takes a long time. What I want to do instead is to name it for what it is and lay a foundation for the discussion. You see, the very nature of redemption is a statement that you don't have to stay where you are. We've come back to that idea over and over again, haven't we? It doesn't matter what you're struggling with. You don't have to stay there. That's the nature of the church. Redemption. You don't have to remain in that grasp of shame and PTSD. I look forward to the day where my body will be mine again in all of its glory. I don't know what that's going to feel like. I have a feeling when Jesus rose from the dead, it was magnificent. To have his dignity robbed and then to have it restored. Can't even imagine. So as a church... We desire to be a safe place. We sing, but that's not why we're here. We study the Bible, but that's not why we're here. We give and celebrate communion, but that's not why we're here. 
We're here because we honestly believe. We actually believe in a one true living God who wants to redeem us and use us for the sake of our friends and neighbors. Father, thank you for your grace, which I've experienced many, many times. Thank you for not being ashamed of me. Because for much of my life, I was ashamed of me, but you weren't. Thank you for helping us to create a church that is not shame-based. church that doesn't live off judgment and ridicule and condemnation, but a church that honestly, earnestly, genuinely seeks to enjoy your presence and your favor. Thank you for being our God. In your son's name we pray. Amen.